Spotify had on its platform something like 5 million podcasts. It's an astonishing sea of content. There was too much stuff. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, February 20th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I get a little meta and talk about podcasting. The audio industry has been riding high in recent years, shelling out big checks for talent and producing an avalanche of shows for pretty much any audience. But are audiences actually tuning in? John and I discuss how the podcast business is cooling down. And we check in on whether Republican presidential wannabes like Nikki Haley and Chris Christie actually have a shot at the 2024 nomination, or are they just media fantasies? We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. It's Media Monday, which means I'm joined by John Kelly. And I want to start with um, a really interesting topic. John, you and I, both straight men, are women in their prime <laughs> after their 40s or not? What's your take on that? I feel like this is an appropriate discussion for nationally broadcast uh, news programs. I know. Wasn't that so stupid? What was so funny about that, you're obviously referring to the, the Don Lemon sort of morning TV suicide vest from last week. When I saw that, I just thought, this is a guy who just hates his job. Like, this is just an angry guy who wants to throw a grenade and step in it. I don't know Don Lemon, but I presume he's not that stupid or ignorant. And yet, to me, that seemed like a person just crying and screaming for help. Well, what what do you mean? Like, what's he, does he need help because he's he's no longer, has his own show in primetime and he has to share minutes with uh, his two co-hosts, Caitlin and Poppy? Yeah, I guess, look, I, I shouldn't discount the fact that maybe he is an idiot and maybe he did genuinely believe that. But I, I, I gotta assume in my heart of hearts that he's not so stupid and ignorant and that he is unhappy at his situation, that he's the sort of person who was at the height of his powers in the Zucker Trump era, commanding large audiences on primetime. And here he is on morning television with you know terrible ratings. I mean, that show um, is it, supposed to be in, in the licked wheelhouse and... Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's abysmal, but it rates poorly and it gets zero buzz and it seems like it's not a, a, a pillar of any CNN strategy. And he seems angry about it. I mean, I, I'm not trying to, to get like Freudian here, but, you know, I assume that this is not the fate that he wanted. And, and what makes it worse is he has nowhere to go. I mean, being hemmed in on that close-up shot it was actually sort of metaphorical. Like there he is with, with Poppy on one side and Caitlin Collins on the other side. And in real life, he's hemmed in by the reality that no one else in the world is going to pay him what CNN pays him. No other network is going to conceive of a, a morning show. I, I can't imagine he's going to take the job of, um, who's that guy on CBS this morning when he's married to Katie Turr? Oh, Tony DeCoupel. Tony, yeah, yeah, right. And uh, th- these these jobs are are dwindling. They are few and far between. And I'm not saying that Don Lemon should be like learning a second skill, like you know, ice fishing or or speed skating or whatever. But but it's, it's a, he's in a frustrating position, and I think he acted like an asshole because it was a cry for help. It was a weird fight to pick. And it, just, it was such a gift. This comment to Nikki Haley, like <laughs> yeah, an I'm example sure. of like, here's how the media won you know, hates Republicans, but like to mm-hmm. like, she's going to try to stand out as the only woman like a take no shit 
female candidate in the sea of male candidates. And it just like gave her ammo and like a reason for people to be talking about Nikki Haley, (laughs) you know, which otherwise they probably wouldn't be in a silly fight to pick too, because it's like, obviously Nikki was talking about Biden and and Trump who are like, there are real questions about their mental health uh, and and decline. And like, no one's asking those questions about Nikki Haley, even if she is in her fifties or whatever, it's just like a dumb fight to pick. Um, but one thing I want to pick, and one yeah. other, just sorry, I want to just yeah. jump into one final thing that was that was surprising to me. I thought that the way that uh, Licked sort of brushed this off on the Thursday 9 a.m. call was poorly played, and I think the metaphorical gun-to-head apology that, that Lemon apparently offered on Friday, where he, you know, um, explained that he made a mistake, just also seemed ham-handed. Like this was a stupid, stupid comment that turned into a 48-hour news story. And it could have been, you know, a, a two-hour blip if he just said, you know what, I'm so sorry. I was an idiot. I don't mean any of this. I apologize. Like, you know I'm better than this. And it would have all gone away. But um, uh, so uh, so are the, the challenges of, of talent and talent management in the, uh, the post-sucker corrective era. Totally. Speaking of talent, by the way, Spotify in recent years has spent a lot of money on talent. They bought Joe Rogan's podcast in 2020. $200 million, $60 million for Alex Cooper of Call Her Daddy fame, formerly uh, in the Barstool Network. She got paid. Congrats to Alex. Anyway, it felt like a couple of years ago, podcasts were the future, future, future. Everyone has a podcast. We, you and me, John, we have a fucking podcast. <laughs> Our emails from 2017 and 2016 are now in the form of a podcast. The New York Times wrote a piece this week talking about how the market for podcasts is cooling and the money being spent on podcasts is cooling. Spotify continues to lay off staffers and development people around podcasts. That sort of touches to something in the zeitgeist and it feels like the kind of like murdery podcast, like telling you something (laughs) you didn't know about a cult in Mexico and it had to do with drugs or like the recent history podcast where it's like, you know, he was a small town lawyer who was actually like selling (laughs) cocaine. Like, I feel like those things are abundant. And there's almost saturation level amount of those kinds of podcasts on top of the people talking podcasts, which is sort of our genre. And I get it. Podcasts are great IP for people developing film and television. Uh, You know, Netflix and Amazon and all those places have licensed podcasts and turned them into documentaries. Yeah, I'm curious, like, what your thoughts are on all this. Like, is, is it just that, like, too many people rushed too quickly into a medium that doesn't fully have, like, a baked in audience yet? Because there are success stories. I mean, The Daily and Pod Save America and Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, like those things are hits. You know, this in the town, powers that be in the town, these are huge hits, obviously. Uh, what's your take on the the reported decline of podcasting? When we were texting this morning uh, about what, what to chat about, I was, I think three, three things came to mind. First, I remembered a, a conversation I had a couple months ago with, with Don Ostroff, uh, an old friend of mine who was the... Um, the chief content officer at Spotify until recently. And she said that Spotify had on its platform something like 5 million podcasts. Th- those are obviously not all Spotify produced podcasts, but it's it's an astonishing sea of content. You could not go and find 5 million shows on your LG TV, no matter how many streaming services you have through your, your mm-hmm. Roku. There was too much stuff and there was too much stuff now. And 
I think that we believe for a long time that listenership to podcasting as it continued to grow would make the audience healthier and bigger and stronger. And it turns out that the margins aren't great. In fact, it actually reminds me of sort of point two, which is uh, how much this resembles what happened in digital media and digital media video, where the, the, the Jonah Preddies of the world and, and the now this is of the world were saying, oh, well, you know, everyone's moving over to, to the internet and to, and to Facebook algorithms, and they're going to consume more and more content on the internet. And it's not only going to be, you know, written and provided, uh, distributed through through the platforms, but also it's going to be video. And uh, that's where all the advertising is going to go. That may have been true, but it only would have worked as a business if the CPMs went up and it turned out they went down. Mm. There was too much supply and not enough demand. And I think that that's, you know, what, what's really gone on here. There are certainly hit shows. You mentioned a number of them, but they are, it's 1%, you know, so you have a 1% hit rate. That's not a great opportunity uh, for investment. And then I think the third thing that has kind of gone wrong, and, and I hope there's a chance to correct it, is, you know, the podcasting boom really started in earnest with Serial, which is like mm -hmm. a decade ago. So it came out of this highly bespoke public radio world. And it is, and I have a lot of friends who've come from this world, it is a non-economic environment. It is people who followed stories for many years to create incredible content where they were upside down on costs. You know, Serial, to the best of my understanding, lost money. They used to laugh that they had this terrible MailChimp advertiser, you know, <laughs> when there were millions of people hmm. downloading that show. And when the industry, when the larger, broader media industry started to get interested in podcasting, it was really the province of these creators, the Sarah Koenigs and the Pineapple Street guys and the executives and, you know, the, the conquering hegemonic media companies would say, well, take our money and scale this. And they didn't know how. The closest um, that anyone came was, you know, it was Gimlet, you know, which was trying to make these high-touch shows. Spotify bought it for $250 million. I don't think Spotify would have made that deal again. Uh, you know, the, the Gimlet creators, their business model was based entirely on creating podcasts that could be licensed for shows. And obviously that's over. Netflix, Warner Brothers Discovery, everyone's buying less. So while they are buying some podcasts, they're buying fewer and fewer. And it turned out the business model that had positive economics were these chat shows. It wasn't the serials and the Dear Johns, you know, only the 0.001% of those kind of shows worked economically. It was the talk shows, it was the Rogans, it was the Caller Daddy shows. And because there was such a so little barrier to entry, everyone gave it a shot. You know, mm -hmm. I was talking to an agent friend today and she was talking about how every Hollywood celebrity or influencer in the world has a podcast now. Some of them have hundreds of thousands of downloads. Some have a couple thousand. And when you have an environment like that, it makes discovery almost impossible. And I'm sure Spotify had internal data saying that podcast listening led to more music listening, but I'm sure they also had people working for the CFO saying, we don't need to produce any of this. We don't need to be putting our money behind this. Their yeah. People are making this stuff anyway. Why not host it? And I'm sure they'll pivot to a business model that's closer to the YouTube creator model where there are some incentives, but mm -hmm. they're just a platform. And this will also probably allow them to, to avoid all the, the Rogan headaches. This is also part of that larger question we've talked about, which is a very simple question that everyone creating a piece of media content needs to answer, which is who is this for? Mm -hmm. Are you making your show on Disney Plus or Hulu to appease your progressive employee base in your office and your peers in the industry? 
Are you making CNN Plus because you think there's a market for it? Like, are you sure, in other words, there's a demand for this before you make it? Like, I think with the powers that be, for example, like our aspiration building this wasn't we're going to, you know, it'd be great to have Joe Rogan numbers of 20 million downloads, but we're for Puck subscribers and we're we're very narrowly focused on the kinds of people who care about the topics that we <laughs> talk about and write about here at Puck. And like podcasting to me is smacked of a college educated cultural bubble kind of thing where we think everyone in the world is listening to podcasts and it really it's it's not it's not that many if you think about it, especially compared to like television and even AM and FM radio. So Pew actually studied this last year. The percentage of Americans uh, over the age of 12 (laughs) who have listened to a podcast in the past week is like less than 30%. Um, In the past month, it's like 40%. Uh, The percentage of Americans who have listened to AM or FM radio in the last week, it's 90%. It's just like, it, this is the, like the question that I, you know, we talk about all the time. It's like the succession versus Yellowstone thing. Like podcasting mm-hmm. continues to feel like the domain of a certain kind of money in their pocket, college educated, center left type. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, Dan Bongino and, and Steve Bannon aren't killing it. And Ben Shapiro is obviously like the probably the king of the heap with the Daily Wire, but on the right. But still, like the numbers are fractional compared to other forms of media. And so you have all this money being rushed into the podcasting space, all of this talent, all this production talent. And sometimes there aren't listeners for a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) other than the top tier. It's also true that I think brands that launched at a moment are kind of like baked into user behavior. So like the daily gets like a couple million downloads per day and 10 million a month. Mm -hmm. Um, those are podcasts that launched uh, in like 2017, yeah. and that was a moment where a lot of people were discovering the medium, where there was heightened interest in news and politics in that sort of space. And so people have that kind of habit now. But if you're trying to launch today in 2023 in that space, it's just harder to break through that kind of clutter. It's just a difficult media moment generally. And I think all of what we've been talking about, too, with this the softening advertising market is you know, over the last year has really hurt all of podcasting too. In an era with open distribution, it's harder to make money. You know, when you think about like our formative years, there were networks and there were newsstands. People had to drill into the earth to to make cable lines. So if you were lucky enough to be a part of that distribution ecosystem, there were finite properties and products to, to put advertising dollars behind in a unwalled garden era there's too much content. The transition from professional media to social media to what we have now, which is something in between, is really the story of like the the oscillation of the advertising market between having these very, very committed direct relationships that were based on generations. I mean, decades. You, you could you knew every month steadily who was going to advertise in Time Magazine or the CBS Evening News or uh, Must See TV. And now the money flows through the platforms and actually just as one sort of like capstone to the Spotify conversation. Their play in the end was about being a platform. And so they made all these deals with these creators and many, many others. And they thought that they could be the platform and that that, that would lead to um, advertising excess. They'd, they'd have the advertising uh, technology to be able to distribute the ads through the shows. It could be dynamic and so forth. I'm not even sure that they were big enough to be able to do that. 
and it's probably too low margin of business for it to be worth it. And if you're in a subscriber, uh, annual recurring revenue business like they are, I don't know. I think they kind of realize what's the point. Hey, John, I want to take a quick break. Then when we come back, I want to talk really quickly about uh, the possibility of someone other than Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis becoming the Republican nominee. Welcome back, everyone. John, we, like all podcasters, went long on the topic of podcasts. (laughs) So I want to keep this sort of tight. But um, Tara wrote a piece about the theory of Chris Christie's case. If Chris Christie somehow decided to run um, in 2024 for the Republican nomination and the way she sort of set it up is like maybe Trump and DeSantis will just go to war with each other so hard. And yeah. they will like just drive their negatives way up that this is what, you know, you call a murder suicide in a primary that someone else slips through. And look, Nikki Haley is trying to be that person. Um, she announced early. So she get get an early jump on the fundraising and all that stuff and all the media. Um, but Christie, you know, he flirted with running in 2012. Didn't he did run in 2016 flamed out. Do you think that like candidates like these Mike Pompeo, Tim Scott, possibly are these just sort of like media objects or are they candidates that could actually capture the imagination of Republican voters in a way that could sideline Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who are winning pretty much every Republican poll at this point? Caveat, it's early. And caveat, you're the expert. I'm not. The, the thing that made me chuckle so much reading Tara's story was I almost pictured like a Rodney Dangerfield type coach, like drawing up uh, an insane, you know, kind of hook and ladder type play where, you know, you imagine you're Chris Christie. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to wait this thing out for a number of months while Trump and DeSantis just beat each other to smithereens. All these mm-hmm. flyby people like Haley and Pompeo and Pence go nowhere and frustrate the donor base and, and have no appeal. And, and maybe Yunkin, you know, uh, Veer's left, maybe Veer's right, maybe Rick Scott does this or that. And then and once, once all those like 17 things happen, it was like the, the play that the Eagles were probably trying to run in the last play of the Super Bowl. You know, it, um, it seems like it's a lot of contingencies and a lot mm-hmm. of other people's money funding it. And I wouldn't put my money behind Chris Christie, who seems like a sort of green room all-star turned like the kind of guy who signs baseballs, you know, at, at card shows <laughs> these days. Um, I, I remember Tara telling me that his last book sold like 2,000 copies or something. I mean, it just, I don't see it, but I'm not Peter Hamby. So you, you tell me what you uh, think is going to happen. You know, I mean, like one, people forget Chris who's governor. He signed a Dream Act uh, welcoming, you know, for New Jersey. You know, he, he was sort of seen as too liberal on immigration. Mm-hmm. Supported gun control, believes in climate change. This was the, you know, Christie who got into the race in 2015 and 2016. And like the Republican Party has gone even farther to the right on a cultural perspective. And like if you look at his record, even five years ago, it would have been tough for him to get in. I feel like it'd be tough for him now. But yeah, I think it's like kind of a green room thing. I think it's hard for candidates to get in late, too. I mean, you kind of just have to be in there working and then sort of like peak at the right time. Rick Santorum did this in Iowa in 2012. He was at 1%. Then the final week, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the rest of the field. He zooms up. Des Moines Register endorses him. Boom. He's suddenly incredible because he had been like putting in spade work in like 99 counties in Iowa, you know? And like we saw with Wes Clark in 2004, we saw with <laughs> um, Jesus, uh, Mike Bloomberg and Deval Patrick in, in sure. 2020 for the Democrats. Like, 
you it's really hard to get in late because one you need batting practice yep two you need to raise money and then the third problem here is like trump and desantis could theoretically beat the shit out of each other for months and months and months and months they could still also both be at 20 30 40 percent yeah like, don't you think that's, that's the most that's likely where you need outcome? to be like you don't yeah like you could agree like so it's like it's more like the hillary obama thing back in 2008 right. where you like go to war with each other but like there was not going to be room for john edwards to slip in there or like bill richardson to slip in there because right. they're still down there at in single digits like you can't even if even if two candidates at the top are like driving up their negatives and fighting with each other as someone who can slip through and this is, by the way, this is what John Kerry did in Iowa back in 2004 when Dean and Gephardt were killing each other. That's because they were all sort of bundled together. It's like the Western Conference in the NBA right now. Like, there's not a lot of difference between, like, yeah. fifth place and 13th place. It's a few games. But, like, yeah, four games. the difference between Trump and DeSantis and then Christie is, like, the difference between the Boston Celtics and whoever the fuck is in last place in the East. Like, it's just, like, a wide, wide, wide canyon. And so that's where it's difficult to wait and then hope you can get in there and like suddenly be an appealing candidate. But the larger picture is still just like what kind of person does the Republican base want? And it seems like somebody who's been alive politically during the Trump era and not someone who is alive during the, you know, we need to be Obama light era of Republican right. politics. And that is my take. <laughs> good, good take. And, and good for reminding our younger listeners out there about uh, the great Dick Gephardt. But I, I think that the, the, the exit presidentials, not when they've come to terms with the fact that they're not going to win, they do it when they can't raise money, you know, w when they're teetering towards the financial brink. And that's mm -hmm. where the Christie presidential theory r runs into a wall for me. I'm not sure this guy has the name ID to just be able to hold out until the very end and think that he can raise money and put together an organization for some of the early voting states. But I mainly just think that Trump's small donor donation network is material. It's real. Um, he's got a ton of money in his pack already. God knows what he's doing with it. And DeSantis is this donor class fantasy. This Harvard, Yale, meatball-y guy who knows how to like tickle the, the sort of legal intellectual curiosities of the MAGA base while still pressing his Brooks Brothers slacks for the, the Chamber of Commerce crowd. They're going to give him a lot of runway, and I just have to assume that even if he takes the bait and has all kinds of banana peel slips, that he'll still be alive and kicking by August, and it's not going to be worth it for Christie. Yeah, I mean, and because he's not just a wet dream of the donor class, like, voters actually like him, Republican voters. And, like, you need both of those things to be true. <laughs> yeah, like, you do, it's you like do. the inverse of Kamala Harris, where, like, donors stopped liking her and voters stopped liking her when she was running for the nomination. And, and same with Christie in this, in this theory. But I think the piece is worth reading nonetheless, because anything can happen in presidential politics. Um, John, thank you so much, man. Have a great week. All right, you too. Great seeing you, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.